2: New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science is an initiative of the Interpretive Methodologies and Methods Group of the American Political Science Association and the Interpretation, Method and Critique Research Network at the Australian National University. For more, visit the New Books Network website, click on Academic Partners and follow up the links. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science, a special series on the New Books Network, hosted by the New Books in Political Science channel, with me, Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University. In this, the ninth episode, we turn again to the Routledge series on interpretive methods, and today to... Interpreting International Politics, which was published in 2014. This is, like other books in the series, a slim and lucid work, one which is packed with useful insights and pointers for the reader. The book's author is Cecilia Lynch, who is a professor of political science at the University of California, Irvine. Cecilia, thank you for coming on to talk about Interpreting International Politics.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Cecilia, you say at the outset of the book that an important objective for you when you were writing it was, or rather it became, to show how and why interpretive work in international politics and international relations has deep roots in the discipline. Indeed, in the first chapter, you go so far as to say that I.R. was largely founded and developed as an interpretivist discipline, but that it has forgotten many of its interpretivist origins and much of that history. How so? How so?
1: Well, that's a very good question. And I do think that, one, it is extremely important to reclaim the larger, longer genealogy of interpretivism in international politics, international relations, for a couple of reasons. And then I'll talk about the how so It's important because of the debates that have been rife across political science, but also within international relations, about how to do research. And I think we're in a different place now than we were 10 years ago and perhaps 20 years ago. But knowing that others struggled with the foundation of the discipline and even prior in terms of what we might call international political philosophy, that folks struggled with moral questions, that they struggled with context, and they struggled with interpretation. And to show how that has happened in the various subfields is very important, especially for students to recognize that there's precedent. There's work that can be called on and thought about in terms of what it offers, what its similarities and differences are to the bodies of work that are being produced now. So that kind of genealogy is important because it does provide validity. It also opens up particular kinds of questions of dominant narratives in past and dominant narratives in the present. And it allows us to evaluate a little bit more how our interpretive lenses might have changed over time.
2: In making that claim that then somehow the interpretivist origins of the discipline have been lost, you refer to many critical and feminist scholars and works who others might, by your own acknowledgement, not have included under the interpretivist rubric. Right? We, we have from Marx to Dilthey, from Haraway to Spivak and, and so many others. So what criteria do you use for distinguishing interpretivist work from its others?
1: First, let me say that the work that I've included in this book is the work that I've actually addressed as forming part of the different subfields in international relations would all recognize itself as international relations or international politics. However, One of the features of international relations is that it has always, always borrowed from other disciplines, be they philosophy or economics or history or diplomacy, both disciplines of practice and disciplines of meta-theory and theory. So if that is the case, then it's important to see that that continues, that continues in how critical folks have reached out or post-colonial theorists have reached to theorists like Spivak or uh, Fanon or people on religion have gone back to both the early modern period, but also looked at work in anthropology and philosophy. So it's nothing new that international relations theorists and international relations scholars have elucidated their work by using people from other fields, scholars in other fields. Nothing's new about that. And so basically, it's been the trajectories of where interpretivism in the field is going that have guided me in terms of who I have been appealing to outside of the field.
2: It sounds like you're saying from that that it would be wrongheaded to think of or look for a subset of literature in IR that would be classed as distinctively interpretivist and that rather that there are traditions, that there are qualities that run through the discipline that you want to draw the reader's attention to. Is that the right way of thinking about how you went about approaching this project?
1: I think I would recast that in different terms. I'm not sure that it's exactly that I don't think that there is a body of work that could be seen as interpretivist, but I have tried throughout to think hard about my own criteria, but also about the different goals of interpretivist research Vis-a-vis the different subfields of international relations. So international relations conventionally has had these four subfields. Those don't always cover all of the newer work and some of the older work in interpretivism. Those subfields are not discrete. They have always overlapped. And so the way in which I've conceptualized this was if we think of international relations as a field that has these conventional four subfields. It's important to see to what degree we can find interpretivist work across the field, in all of the subfields. And I think, as I say in the book, that we can and that we have. And so for that reason, I think that in addition, I try to outline some presuppositions in philosophy of science, debates in philosophy of science, but also criteria for what the goals of interpretive work in international relations are. I do think if there's one thing in my view that has dominated interpretive work in international relations, there's a sense of the long durée, as French sociologists would say, of history, the long arc of history, and how, you know international relations theorists, go back to significant periods of time, like the early modern period, like the revolutions, the French U.S. and increasingly Haitian revolution, like the uh, treaties of Westphalia, like Versailles the concert of Europe, then the end of World War 1, the end of World War II, the end of the Cold War. And what interpretivists tend to do is they look at dominant power relations and how those things have been interpreted over time and what kinds of narratives become dominant. So I do think that a line going through a lot of interpretivist work is denaturalizing dominant narratives, and for some, it's more denaturalizing the methods that have arrived at those narratives. For others, it's more denaturalizing the narratives themselves for either emancipatory purposes or more genealogy of power purposes.
2: Why do you think it is that this denaturalizing work is especially important for scholars of international politics?
1: It's so very easy for policy and for actual relations among countries, and not only among countries, but substrata of countries, to fall into interpretations that become dominant, but which can, in fact, be problematic and serve particular interests. So when I was working on my dissertation, which became my first book, I went to number of archives, including the public record office in Kew Gardens outside of London. My dissertation was on the period between the two world wars and the move from the League of Nations to the creation of the United Nations immediately after World War II. And as a political scientist, I didn't really know what I was looking for. But things that I did find were layers and layers of Documents and then a whole set of volumes. So there was also already very soon after World War II, selected historians were tasked by the Foreign Office to write the official histories, if you will. So if we think of diplomatic history, it's been in the service of various powers, various empires, etc. And that in the service of means that there are stakes involved in naturalizing particular narratives. And not only interpretivists then work to poke holes in those narratives, but I think interpretivists have tended to do it in particular kinds of ways and using perhaps a wider variety of of sources as well.
2: As you mentioned your dissertation and early research, did you think of yourself or your work as interpretivist at that time, or did that come later for you?
1: It's very interesting because there was a panel on some of my work a few years ago, and Devorah was on the panel, and she brought up that in that book, Beyond Appeasement, from 1999, I used the term critical interpretivism, and, and I was kind of surprised because I'd forgotten that it had gone back that far. At that point, I didn't see myself certainly as part of a body of interpretive scholars, and I have to credit Deborah and Perry for their unstinting and ongoing work to build that community, which has become incredibly vibrant and incredibly creative and continues to reach its tentacles into new areas and bring in new junior scholars and all of that. So no, I did not, although I used the term.
2: Well, that certainly sounds like something that Devorah would have picked up on, and I can only concur <laughs> on what you're saying about the community building that she and Perry Schwartze are doing. And indeed, this podcast series wouldn't exist, but for, for them and for the work that they've done with this Routledge series of books that we're discussing, let me continue, in fact, um, with them for a moment, because we might actually echo a little bit of what came out in the first of the interviews in this podcast series, which was, of course, with Devorah mm-hmm. and Peregrine Schwartze on their interpretive research design they discussed and it's something that recurs in your book the notion of abductive reasoning in interpretivist social science and in your case you have a particular interest of it in relation to international relations. And I really appreciated how you succinctly engaged with that logic and also with other concepts and goals of interpretive research and in international relations early in the book. So at risk of, of repetition of some of the contents early in this series, and with apologies to any classical pragmatists listening, would you briefly outline for us how you understand the abductive logic of interpretivist inquiry and how that logic differs from its inductive and deductive others?
1: There have been several international relations examinations, if you will, or excavations of abductive forms of inference. Primarily, uh, Fritz Cradequil, who is my mentor, and uh, Jörg Friedrichs did a piece in international organization a number of years ago. But in teaching some of these concepts At the PhD level, one thing I notice is that students get what induction is and they get what deduction is. And so then they want to say, okay, abduction is moving back and forth between the two. In my reading, abduction is more than that. It's not simply moving back and forth between induction and deduction. Kenneth Waltz, who was famous for his discussions and sort of imposition of the deductive method on everyone he employed induction as well. I mean, he did not come at his theory without any initial inductive knowledge, if you will. And others who consider their work to be primarily inductive also employ deduction. How I see abduction is Sometimes it's connected in an interesting way, although I think that more needs to be done on this with the whole notion of reflexivity. And here is how. To engage in abductive forms of inference, you know that there are puzzles that cannot be understood or explicated conventionally. And sometimes it is moving out of one's own or attempting to move out of one's own frame of reference and to think about what other kinds of frames of reference out there might help enlighten me on this or might help to understand. And that could be frames of reference having to do with metaphors, if you will. It could be frames of reference concerning different ontologies of being, or it might even be frames of reference as Uta Weldis talks about low data and high data, the sort of notion that we can go beyond official archives, we can go beyond The records of diplomats, for example, we can understand what is happening sometimes through examination of, in her case, comic books or novels, so that these things can be important. And it's not necessarily a willy-nilly or random thing. It's always referring back to the puzzle, right? But it's trying to open it up in a new way. That's how I see abduction.
2: And you refer to problems as being explicated rather than explained. What's the difference and why does it matter?
1: I use that term increasingly because a long time ago, Martin Hollis and Steve Smith did this distinction, this opposition between understanding and explanation. And I think that goes so far, but it doesn't go all the way because what explication does is it doesn't throw out this notion of causality totally. It understands that things that phenomena can influence other phenomena, those things could be constitutively produced. That is to say, there's not one causal arrow with multiple reasons for them. So the idea of explication is not simply explaining a cause-effect relationship between discrete variables. Instead, it is bringing in meaning-making, and here Richard Warding's work is important as well as the work of Devorin Perry and a number of others, but it's bringing in meaning-making and the stakes involved. So one of the things that interpretivists do, in my view, is we don't look at how X pre-constituted variable causes why, whether and how, or why it causes why, pre-constituted variable. These things that become variables become very static. And interpretivists try to keep the dynamism involved in these things and to understand that they are not pre-given static entities. And that, in fact, in different situations, the dynamic can be influenced in multiple ways. So to explicate thinks about, okay, what does it mean to look at this relationship or to say that this is a result, this is what is shaped from these features, and what are the stakes involved?
2: So there are still causal logics here, if I understand correctly. You're working towards a certain kind of causal inference, but one which is not mechanistic, but rather, I think in your terms at one point in the book, is concerned with what constrains or enables outcomes. Would that be an appropriate way of putting it?
1: I think that that is a good way of putting it. And what constrains or also enables and what enables also constrains. And this is something that the work of Fritz Cradequil, among others, has long dealt with. This idea that things are produced through intersubjective understandings and that these are also produced discursively. We can't communicate according to Cradaquil, without shared understandings to begin with. And those shared understandings, though, are always evolving. They're not necessarily fixed. So we can't trade goods if we don't have a sense of the value of what I want to trade with you, what you want to trade with me. And that value is an intersubjective kind of understanding. And the value might be viewed differently among other different kinds of communities. So it's not about tossing out any idea that results or outcomes are produced. And it's not about tossing out any idea that those things are not real and that there are not stakes involved or they don't have implications. What it is about is seeing the contingency involved in those outcomes and the fact that they are not a historical. And this is also going back to your first question about why it's important to think about interpretive IR as having a decently long history. Because the kinds of things that we are trying to explicate, that we're looking into, are not ahistorical. They're situated. We need to contextualize them. And that entails a whole raft of methodological decisions about what is important to contextualize. And that goes back to the question of what are the stakes involved? What is the puzzle one is trying to dig into?
2: Cecilia, let's take a short break here. And when we return, I think we'll pick up right where we left off with the stakes involved and then dig into some of the contents of particular chapters in the book a bit more and hear from you about what you've been doing since the book was published. Slash
0: nbn fifty to get fifty percent
2: off. Welcome back to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science. With me, Nick Cheeseman, talking with Cecilia Lynch about interpreting international politics. Cecilia, at the end of the first half, you mentioned the stakes, and at one point in the book, you discuss how so as to sharpen your students' sense of the epistemological stakes that are involved in their projects. You ask them to conduct a little exercise in which they write down their central research questions first in the form of hypotheses and then in the form of a question that is concerned primarily with meaning. I'd love to hear a bit more about how that works out in actual practice, what kind of discussions you have with the students who realize through this exercise how much the design of the questions they ask determines the answers that they get.
1: Well, to be honest, sometimes it works out that there are clear distinctions, and sometimes it does not. And I think that that has to do with some of the similarities as well as the differences in interpretivist versus positivist research processes. So if we remember that, I usually ask students to do this on the first or second day of class with something that they are working on very often they're still struggling. It's the beginning of the quarter. They're struggling to figure out what it is that they're working on, either because they're at a new phase of their graduate career or because they haven't yet really been compelled to articulate something very coherently. But the general upshot has to do with how stating something as a hypothesis tends to narrow the project and sometimes allows one to think very concisely, while stating something as a research question tends to open up more possibilities and tends to make students feel as though, given that they're embarking on research, they could go in several directions. So the hypothesis tends to close down some ways of thinking about things. When I teach that particular class, I almost always have students who are, in fact, very positivist oriented, and others who are not from the get-go, and then others who might have been socialized into more of a positivist framework, but really want to move out of it and don't know how. And as far as the first group goes, I always tell students this isn't about changing who you are or the kind of work you want to do. It's simply about making us all more aware of different research processes and different ways of conceptualizing things. Because I also tell them, and I am convinced about this, that I'm fairly convinced about this. As a good researcher of any kind, I should be open to other interpretations, but I'm fairly convinced that part of this is an aesthetic choice. I think some of us tend to gravitate more toward particular ways of conceptualizing the world, and those might be more positivist in orientation. I do have one anecdote, less from that particular point in the class, but it speaks very much to this, which is, A student who was a former humanitarian aid worker really wanted to dig into emotion and the stakes of emotion for aid work. And another colleague kept telling me, Well, I think what this student really needs to do is simpler because this business of emotion is getting her into these complicated theories that don't really speak to whether aid works or not, or whatever the question that the colleague thought it should be. And I realized that this has to do with our socialization and our comfort levels with different ways of doing things. But as I explained to the colleague, this student has been there, this student has thought in that way in terms of cause and effect through the student's former position. And it didn't work for her. She wanted something else. And so I do try to uncover where it is that students are going. And I found that a lot of students are dissatisfied with conventional positivism, but not everyone. And I think it's a useful exercise both for showing students' some of the stakes involved in different ways of framing their research interests, but also understanding that not everybody thinks like they do.
2: (laughs) I'm really glad that you raised the point about aesthetics, because it is something that caught my eye in the conclusion of the book, where you mentioned that an aesthetic inclination towards interpretivism, that the situating of oneself as a student or a scholar Vis vis this body of work that we identify as interpretivist is important for you in thinking about both who your audience is and the nature of the interpretivist project. And I was wondering about the implications of that, or if I'd understood you correctly. Are you suggesting that the interpretivist project is as much an aesthetic one as it is scientific? And if so, what does an aesthetic social science or perhaps an aesthetics of social science look like for our purposes?
1: In the conclusion, I think. I think what I'm trying to do is let's really get into the notion of aesthetics, although the idea of aesthetics and international relations and all the tentacles of what we might consider to be under the rubric of aesthetics have become increasingly important in studies of the visual and studies of the non-textual and intertextuality of various kinds. So studies of movements, uh, feminist studies of embodiment, all of those things, I think, are very important in an aesthetic way of looking at things. But in the conclusion, I do talk about the politics of writing a book like this or reading a book like this or the political engagement. I talk about it as a work of engagement. And I do think that that is important also to think about, now that you've raised it, the relationship between engagement and aesthetics. And maybe that's a future project that you've just spurred on. I don't know. But the reason here is that we often put so much of our professional identity and even personal identity into methodology and epistemology. And I think by backing off a little bit and also seeing these as aesthetically informed and as informed by engagements that we have and commitments, that it might make it easier to talk across paradigms.
2: You've mentioned it's their engagement. It strikes me that throughout the body chapters in the book, which is, you've already alluded to, are organized around conventional rubrics of international security, international political economy, international law and organization. You're returning again and again to feminist traditions to critical traditions particularly in critical security studies but also to a considerable extent in political economy to postcolonial studies could you speak to how these traditions inform the way that you organize the book and going back to something that we spoke about in the first half of the interview how they inform how you think about interpretivism in IR
1: this also goes back to the politics of engagement. Feminist theorists in international relations and beyond have been enormously important and influential in articulating a lot of the problems that interpretivists across the board deal with. But they still have not been given enough credit. Audie Klotz and I, when we wrote a book on constructivism published in 2007, we also, in that book, included discussion of our indebtedness to feminist research as well. And, and part of that, for me, is a statement about engagement. It's a statement about saying that feminist research has not been given its due, that sometimes... Feminist research on particular kinds of politics and other work in these various subfields that I am at least calling interpretivist might have developed concurrently, or even feminist work might have preceded in some ways. But there wasn't enough acknowledgement, very often by men, but also by other women. And so I am not considered to be a feminist international relations theorist necessarily, But I always want to acknowledge my indebtedness to the very rich trajectory of feminist theory. And I would say by the same token, my engagement with increasing engagement with postcolonial theory and decolonial theory is very similar in purpose. I've been working more on humanitarianism in different parts of the world and its conceptualization, In different parts of Europe, North America, the Middle East, and especially Africa. And that has brought me into contact with a number of friends now, as well as collaborators, uh, particularly across the African continent, with the Critical Investigations into Humanitarianism and Africa blog that I co-edit. And not all of them would call themselves necessarily post-colonial theorists. But all of them do come from very different understandings, even when trained in Anglo-European social science. And so I think that it's important to understand that, again, we don't all come out of the same experiences. We don't all define our context the same way. And that it is incredibly enriching to dig into the insights of both feminists and postcolonial scholars for those reasons.
2: At risk of belabouring the point, is there, though, a danger that if so many different traditions, feminist, critical, post-colonial, are brought in under the interpretivist rubric, that interpretivism ends up coming a kind of a residual category that anyone other than a positivist can fit into that category? And how do we make a clear distinction then between, say, what might be you know, interpretivist work within one of these traditions and work that we would say is not interpretivist?
1: I think that the broad outlines of a distinction are in fact positivist and interpretivist, right? It's not so much a question of everyone who doesn't define themselves as positivist is interpretivist any more than it is anyone who doesn't define themselves as interpretivist is positivist. I think that it's a little more diffused than that in practice. So I think that a lot of positivists have never stopped to understand the issues of philosophy of science that give rise to positivism. And that's because they don't have to. That's because it's not part of their training. It is the more dominant, if you will, or it has been. I think that as interpretivism grows, there's more dialogue about trying to draw boundaries and debate about drawing boundaries. I think you're correct that those boundaries might not always be absolutely fixed. And so at this point in time, I do feel that there are distinctions in how one goes about research. Perry and Vora have made those very clear in their work, and I think those distinctions do work. On the other hand, researchers on the ground don't always think of those distinctions when they are actually formulating their research projects, their questions. Or hypotheses, and that can result in some sometimes sloppy attempts to sort of cross categories, if you will. But I would still want to leave a space open for new ways of conceptualizing things. I mean, I do think we're at a moment in time where interpretivist work has had to define and defend itself by demonstrating its scientific bona fides and its philosophical bona fides. And I think that it has done so. And I think it's useful for students of any persuasion to look at those things and then also to reflect on, okay, well, what are the philosophical bases of positivism and and do those hold up as well? So I think that these are rough distinctions I think the stakes are going to be dynamic. You know, I think they always have been dynamic, but I think that's sort of where we are right now in them. And I'm not really troubled by the idea that if it's not positivist, it's interpretivist. I don't see that as a residual category. I think in both of these categories, as they're set up, there are very intentional folks who say, this is how... This kind of research needs to be done. And then there are others who are more interested in getting some kind of research done. And sometimes they run into conceptual problems because of the way they're trying to blend things. And they don't always get the advice on how to navigate those things. But hopefully with this kind of series, students can think more about the stakes involved in what they're doing and whether and how they want to be more intentional about saying my work is interpretivist.
2: And it seems to me that these are all reasons as to why you didn't and arguably cannot organize an interpretivist IR text around, say, a set of best practices to study international politics.
1: We cannot do a series of best practices. No, we cannot. Both because these situations are fluid, but also because best practices almost inevitably would not take into account contextual factors. I do want to just bring us back to the idea that we can still talk about good standards or standards for judging good work. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but my book does distill some of those standards for good research, and so does Perry and Devorah's. And my own students have really liked their term of trustworthiness. I think that that becomes very persuasive.
2: I agree very much with the point that you want to make about trustworthiness and find also that when you think it through, it's persuasive. As you raised it, though, are there any particular standards that you would associate with interpretive work in international politics that you would want to draw listeners' attention to?
1: I think we still have a lot of conceptual and empirical and therefore interpretive work to do in kind of disentangling what has been this... Eurocentric model of international relations, there's a lot of criticism of it, but there are also other kinds of critiques going on in different parts of the world. And I think that exploring those, I think there's so much we still have to learn in international relations. International relations, in my view, has been a field quick to slap on dominant interpretations After every major war, after every whatever major world event. And I think that we're at a point where we really need to figure out what it means to be more global.
2: It seems to me that what you were just saying really goes to the last chapter of the book, which does address questions of race and religion, secularism, the histories and futures of international relations. And I was interested in why these topics are not others. It seems to me that uh, partly it's as a result of the work that you've been doing in recent years, as well as your sense of how the discipline is changing. Perhaps a question to ask out of all of this, and you may like to relate it back to one or more of these topics in that final chapter, is... What kind of a future for international politics, international relations would you be looking to? I think we get some sense already from the answers you've given, but what does the future of international politics look like to you now, and what might it be with contributions from interpretivists like yourself?
1: This book was published in 2014. A whole lot more has been done on race and international relations, as well as religion slash secularism in international relations since. But I think the general outlines of the framing in that chapter are still what folks are looking into. So it's not the entire field. And yes, they are things that I am interested in. I've been interested in religion for a long time. And my work on humanitarianism has taken me increasingly into questions of race and coloniality, as well as the events of the past decade and more in the U.S. as well as elsewhere. So my work in many ways has pointed to that. And I do think that we all tend to put forth things that we know something about. But I, especially in the work on race, I am saying there That my own positionality as a white Western woman means that I have been looking intentionally for sources, for perspectives, for ways of understanding both past and present from my colleagues, from different parts of the world, from different kinds of identities, etc., and so that's just a way of talking about how I, I came to some of these issues or why they're in that penultimate chapter of the book. Where I think, though, a lot of this is going is still interconnected. I think that it doesn't really matter if you're interested in political economy or security or law and organization. I think everybody is having to deal with climate change as a very, very grave issue. I also see that as related to race and religion in important ways in terms of, we, we know about racial discrimination in you know environmental dumping, both within each one of our national boundaries as well as across states. But also then, Where religion is concerned, I consider indigeneity or indigenous practices to be an essential component of this thing we call religion. I've been charting to a degree the appeals to indigeneity as ways of saving us, if you will, from environmental catastrophe along with the backlash to those kinds of discourses. And the backlash could be a couple of things. Well, that interpretation is romanticizing indigeneity, or it's not feasible, or whatever. So I think that a lot of these interpretations about our survivability are really shaping right now a lot of work on interpretivist futures.
2: Did the contents of that answer speak to what you've been doing in the seven years since the book came out? What have you been doing in the meantime and, and what, if you don't mind me asking, are you working on now?
1: So in 2020, I published a book called Wrestling with God, and it is about the ethical precarity in both Christianity and International Relations, and there are chapters that deal with the early modern period. They take on the religion-secularism debate, and then there are chapters that have to do with the 20th century, taking up again the interwar period and the pacifist-just war debate, taking up liberation theology and the notion of the political economy of religious debate, if you will, and then the contemporary period of faith-based humanitarianism, and how both Christian and secular conceptualizations have been inadequate to come up with what, in my view, are ethically non-precarious, I suppose, means of reflection and action. So... Basically what I'm arguing in that book is that we need to understand and recognize our ethical precarity. And that goes for both the dominant Christian traditions that have shaped international relations and their symbiotic relationship with secular traditions that have shaped international relations. And then I trace some new thinking in Christian theologies as well. So I'm very interested in these theological debates and My work on humanitarianism has focused primarily on religious humanitarianism, and I'm very interested in how some of the dominant tropes of both Christianity and Islam play out in different parts of the world, Africa and the Middle East, and how indigenous voices also sometimes are sidelined and sometimes are quite persistent despite being sidelined. So I'm interested in all of these tensions surrounding how we think about religion and how we think about religious ethics and intra-religious interaction. And then I'm also interested in humanitarianism as a contemporary extension of forms of empire, and that takes up racial connotations, the whole white savior industrial complex that Teju Cole articulated, etc. I finished about 200 interviews with religious humanitarians in different parts of Africa and the Middle East, and also Europe. And that is the next book, along with a couple of co-authored projects with colleagues in Cameroon and different parts of Africa.
2: Wow. There's much to look forward to then. And for listeners uh, who haven't seen it, uh, Wrestling With God, I believe, is out with Cambridge. Uh, On top of all of that, dare I ask, do you foresee that you'll write any more methods texts in international relations? Maybe a revised edition of the book we've been discussing today?
1: You know, as I sort of re-skimmed through it, I was wondering, would I be up for a revision of this? And at this point, I'm gonna I'm gonna let it lie for a little while and see what else comes down the the pike. I have continued to write somewhat on methods and somewhat on my other work on the interwar period, for example. So I'm still asked to contribute to various things, and I'm sure that that I will continue. I've still contributed to the wonderful Methods Cafe at the APSA, and I'll continue to be involved. That's for sure sure. Another book on methods? At this point, I'm not sure.
2: Thanks anyway for advertising the Methods Cafe. And for anyone who's not familiar with it, you could see details of it on the Interpretive Methodologies and Methods website. Cecilia Lynch, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today to discuss interpreting international politics.
1: Thank you so much, Nick.
2: And listeners, if you've stuck with us because the discussion was engaging, then you might like to check out other episodes featuring authors of books in their Outlet series on interpretive methods. To date, we've had, as you've heard already, Gren Schwatche and Devorah Janal talking about interpretive research design, Fred Schaefer on elucidating social science concepts, and Ari Glass and Jessica Sadorgo talking about Leanne Fuji's interviewing in social science research. These are a few of the episodes you can find on our website, or wherever you get your podcasts via the New Books in Political Science channel.
1: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?